Good morning. Christ is risen. <laughs> um, this morning's scripture reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is Paul writing to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and extort, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I know what day it is. It's the day that Christ rose from the dead. All right, I get it. This is good. It's always comforting when the pastor knows what's going on, right? So it's hard to, to miss what the day is about. And so um, anyone else want to get up here and preach and tell people what they already know? It's tough, huh? It's, uh, it's not that easy to preach on uh, Resurrection Sunday because all of us know uh, the story, or so, uh, so, we, so we think. And so I'm going to do something very different this morning. Uh, you may notice this is not a typical text used on Easter morning. We're at the, one of the, the last epistle that Paul wrote. Uh, this is a text that seems to, a lot to do with a senior preacher talking to a junior preacher, a, a senior pastor to a, to a, a, a new pastor, and, uh, but I want to share with you that just before we pray for the text and pray for the preacher, uh, that once you move into the post-resurrection accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, toward the end of the Gospels, once you move into the book of Acts, the history book of the Bible in the New Testament, once you have moved into that, once you've moved into the resurrection era of Jesus Christ, the entire New Testament from that point on, the, all that is remaining, connects directly with the resurrection. So you can uh, open your Bible and you can open to any text and in some way or another it is connected to the resurrection. And so the, with that in mind, let's, let's, uh, let's anticipate God being among us as we explore some of the last words of the Apostle Paul what he shared, why he shared it, and what difference that would make in our lives. And so we join me in prayer. Lord, in the time that we have, uh, I ask that you would indeed uh, show us 
how this text connects to the resurrection. And then, Lord, as we think about this, how does this all relate to us? Lord, I thank you for the the opportunity I have to confess um, that you need to work here. This is your moment when all that fills our lives, all that feels so important, would, would fade away and find its proper place. I pray you, you would help us to see the grandeur of what we've already sung about and spoken about. Help, it, help this extraordinary truth that you rose and your son came out of the grave. We, Lord, we thank you that you can make this truth deeply rooted in our lives. I pray that you will do that among us in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this is 2 Timothy chapter 4. And verses uh, 4 through 8 are provided for you. Excuse me, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 8 are provided for you. And it's quite a profound passage where the Apostle Paul is explaining to a young preacher, keep going, hang in there, keep preaching, in season, end and out, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. And this is his, sort of his last exhortation to a young pastor. And then he reflects on his own life because he is aware that he is about to die. And in many ways as a church, we are wrestling with how does the life of Jesus Christ, how does, how does this remarkable life who rose from the dead, we as a church are seeking to connect that gospel, that good news, to our daily life. We want that to be the epicenter of our lives, what God has declared and done and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is a struggle to remember the gospel. It is a struggle to keep remembering it and being astonished by the gospel, but that's what we endeavor as a church to do. All our small groups, all our um, discipling or training and teaching is all about the good news in Jesus Christ. So what we have today is a look at the the, the, the larger template or the larger outline of what's going on here is in the Apostle Paul's life, he had a past, he has a present, and he has a future. When we look at our own lives, we are always interacting with these three time zones. You think about your past. I would think quite often your past is connecting to your present and you think a lot about your present, I would, I would think. And then your future. It's interesting how the future keeps coming at us. We have enough going on in our own day, right? And, and yet, the future feels almost always very real. So these three kinds of time zones, the, the past, the present, and the future, we're sort of moving in and out of these three areas in our life, these, these time zones, continually. Sometimes our past feels like it repeats itself and we're, we're playing out a script that we, we, we heard in our mind at 10 years old 
and now we're much older, but we're still wondering uh, how can we get past this event that took place in our past. Our present sometimes feels like it's going to just overwhelm us. So much going on, so much pressure, so much we have to manage. And then our future feels uncertain. What, where is it going? How can I be sure of what will truly be safe for me? Will the future be good for me? Will I be secure in the future? Well, it's interesting if you take this, these three kinds of areas, these time zones, if you will, and now I want to ask you a series of questions. So the first question is, the past, the present, and the future, what realm owns you? Realm or a sphere of existence. Which one owns you? With the Apostle Paul, we have him saying aloud to Timothy in verse 7, he says this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. In, all, in that statement, we have the Apostle Paul referring to his past when he was called of God to be an apostle. We have him referring to his present. He's aware of consciously being faithful to the calling. And now we know that as he's speaking about these two, the past and the present, I've kept the faith, I've, uh, I've, I've won the fight. We know that he's leaning into the future. And he leans confidently because he knows that a day of reward, a day of vindication for him is coming. Let's pause. For you, what realm do you live in? What I mean by this is what is dominating your life now? And can you see these three time zones in your life working together for good? Do you have that way of thinking about your life? Or is your past overwhelming your future or your present? Is your present clouding out the future? Notice in the Apostle Paul, his past has been working marvelously together for good. He was once a persecutor of the church itself. He now knows that God has, God has worked in him faithfulness. It was a transition, a change in his heart. He's aware that he kept his calling. He was faithful. He resisted uh, the suffering to, or the temptations that came his way. Interesting, isn't it? What realm dominates your life? And are all three realms, the past, present, and future, are these working together for the good? And, of course, the next question is, do you know Jesus Christ who is the one who can make sense of your past, your present, and your future. Listen to the confidence of this person about to die, reflecting back on, on his whole life, and no doubt connecting his whole life to the risen Jesus Christ and the huge difference that that made in his life. What we want to acknowledge, as Romans 8 tells us, it tells us that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, 
then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I want to apply that to our text today, past, present, and future as a framework, and say this. The spirit of God is actively at work inside the believer to help you make sense of your life. It is working together for the good, God has caused his son to be raised from the dead. That same spirit is in you, working life into your body. Sometimes it feels like for me, my past is so influential in my life that it, it shapes so much of my present and it, and it sort of causes me to doubt about my future. I, th- I think about the things I wish I, could, I would have pursued earlier in life, would have made me a better minister of the gospel. Think of things I should have learned long ago. I have a, a, a big, big uh, periods of misspent youth in my, in my background. Of course, God uses all of this. And God, by his spirit, is now infusing me with power and strength that's not of my own. And the same it's true for all, all believers. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. At work to make sense of our lives, our past, our present, and our future. We have entered into the realm of the resurrection, the resurrection life. This doesn't mean that we don't experience sorrow or difficulties, but we have entered into a new realm of existence Jesus, who left those grave clothes behind um, at the tomb, entered into a new era. It's it's the birthday of of the new world. And you and I frame our very lives around this event. So we, of all people, are to be a hopeful people. And so, what Paul is emphasizing to Timothy is... To this young preacher, preach to give people relief from these overwhelming time zones. Preach so they can have relief. Don't let the, the ups and downs of the ministry get to you. People need relief. He's speaking to a preacher. Give them the proclaimed good news of the new realm, the resurrection realm. And of course, we know that a master story is unfolding in the Bible. It is the story of stories. And that's the story that I need to see how God has masterfully worked over sin and death and hell and Satan. And there was a great and beautiful creation, Genesis 1 and 2. And then there was a rebellion in the garden, Genesis 3. And a promise of a redeemer. And the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of God's promises. And then Mary has a son. And the Redeemer is born. And this is the master story. And the life of our story fits into that in a marvelous and important way. But everything has culminated in Jesus Christ. Now this story, this story is glorious and wonderful, but it says something about mankind. It says something about mankind that we would not normally like to hear. The good news is that God forgives, but the the problem is we have sins. We've turned away knowingly from the living God. To proclaim the gospel, 
means to encounter human resistance to the gospel. And what we find in this unique story is that it proclaims a humility that should characterize all who listen. This story humbles us, smashes our pride. It tells us that no one has superiority over anyone else. This story is humbling of all people, all races, all cultures. No one is superior. No one was found to be obedient. No one was found to um, just need a little assistance from God. The ground at the cross is level. This story is a humbling story. The disciples don't look good as the drama unfolds in the New Testament. No one can claim a right to having salvation or earning salvation. This story makes human beings own their rebellion. And it also, though, points to the one who was willing to to suffer for our rebellion. All of us, Isaiah 53, 6 says that all of us are like sheep and we have gone astray, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the greatness of our salvation is that it is salvation. It means that Jesus did suffer for sins. And to get the good news right, we first have to see ourselves in a way that we would otherwise rather not. We're being drawn into this greatest story because God can include our own evil in the healing work of his son. And Easter is the proclamation that Jesus Christ now has assumed a new role in the world and in the cosmos. The world is under new management. Jesus culminates the story. He's the center. He's the twist in the plot. He's the one who's the hero. And it is in through his story that you are delivered, your past, your present, and your future. But let's ask the question, really, what story does deliver you? Secondly, let's ask this question, not just what realm do you live in, but what story, what story delivers you? We are always attracted to stories, aren't we? There's an NCAA tournament going on. These men are playing basketball. And uh, there's a commercial with, uh, with a, a car that backs out of a driveway and almost hits a delivery truck. But this car is so smart that it breaks on its own. And uh, so that's a, certainly a, a nice feature in a car. But it sends a signal to us. In a little 30-second commercial, a signal has been sent. And that is, you've got a problem. Here's a solution. Every commercial has a kind of redemption to it. Every story presents some kind of redemption uh, for us. Every TV TV episode, every novel. We have an insatiable desire for story. What story are you in, really and truly? Is it the story of the American success story? 
In other words, is this really what's captivating your heart? Something is where you've been made to be animated by story. And Paul is telling Timothy, there is a tendency of the heart, even the heart of people who attend church, profess faith in Jesus Christ, there is a tendency to turn away from the truth proclaimed. Such is the residue of sin within our hearts, such is the difficulty of the task of proclamation. People turn away. Look at verses uh, 3 and uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, that's the story, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into, into myths. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, who has seen the tendency of the human heart for decades, he now highlights the myth-making capacity of people. We wander off into myths. Now, give me just a moment. I'd like to explain to you something that's going on here. When we think about myths... Usually a myth is associated with a fantastic creature. And in the ancient world, they would have some cr- crazy creature with a strange head, a different body, and even another, another tail. And so it wouldn't be like a, a, a goat that we would recognize, but it would have multiple kinds of features from other animals. This creature was meant to throw you back a little bit because it was mysterious, and it would draw you in, and it would have special powers. And in the ancient world, what they did was they took this and they built stories around such a creature. And these stories would be enacted in plays. Usually, would just be mime. They wouldn't even be words. They would just have actors up there acting out without words the story of this creature and what it can do. And if there was a king or queen over that civilization, they would make sure that this myth this creature would be central in the people's imagination. So it would be imprinted on bowls, on the sides of temples, uh, chests of drawers. Uh, You couldn't escape the image of the creature that the queen or the king wanted you to have. In fact, there would be calendar days, festival days, that would be devoted to that creature. So, In these ancient worlds, this is kind of strange for us, they would be devoted to the outward image. So you couldn't have a bowl of cereal without seeing this image there, right? Strange. What are the myths, though, that we we could be tempted to turn to as Christians? You see, on, on Easter morning, resurrection morning, a statement is being made, this is the story for your heart. This is the story for your life. And we see it lived out in the New Testament. This is the story to die for. This is the story that makes you a human being again. But 
Paul speaks to people and he speaks to Timothy and says, but it's not so easy just to say it once in a while. You're up against the myth-making capacities of the human heart. And in the ancient world, it was imagery. Today, we might say, yes, there is imagery. I was at Sports Authority about a week ago walking around and uh, I was with someone else who was shopping. I didn't have anything to, to buy. And I was looking out. And yes, imagery is being impressed upon me. I was being told uh, how important it would be to be one of Nike's tribe or Adidas. Or, or, you know, it, was, it was interesting. I didn't have any real interest in, in going in any particular direction. But they were promising me power, uh, endurance, uh, I was amazed. I mean, I, I just get these shoes on and I can run a marathon. I was watching the promises in these little taglines. Maybe I'm getting older. I know it's not that important for me to promote a particular product and, and then to say, doesn't this make me something? But interesting for us today is that the story for our culture, for the time in which we live, is no longer a single story. There's 10,000 stories. What's happened is we've put the earbuds on, we get the Netflix account going, and we're, we're ready. We're ready for, to engage, to depart from, to imagine, to create our own worlds. We listen to no one but ourselves. And the idea that, you see, Paul repeats twice, turning away from the truth. Oh, can't imagine a more offensive idea in our day and age as the truth. Os Guinness, uh, theologian, cultural critic, author of many, many books, spoke at Stanford University about 10 years ago. Professors from Stanford University are right there. A gathering of of students wanted to hear him speak. And he said right there, he said, this institution, referring to Stanford, you can walk the halls of this institution for years and never have a conversation about the truth. Truth has been abandoned in our day and age. And Christianity comes along with this bold, humble, humble sinners, bold proclamation. There is the truth, and it is found in the Savior. And when the Bible speaks about truth, it's not talking about some abstract, some abstract something you'd write on a chalkboard. When the Bible speaks about the truth, it speaks in terms of a person. John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth. And the life. What's being turned away from today is even the idea of ideology. College students are largely just given up, giving up on that whole idea that I should be committed to some particular philosophy of life or some pursuit or some something out there. There's nothing to learn from history. There's nothing to learn outside of my own private myth-making ability. Everyone is calculating, what will this cost me? 
If I, if I do this for, for a summer, it might not advance my career. The priority of self is trumping all other stories. What story can come and reveal the self and its tiny aspirations? What story can come and reveal the true condition of the soul before a holy God? What story can awaken a human being to their condition? It is the proclamation of the gospel. Because what Jesus is doing in this story is he's saying he is managing this story. He is overseeing this story, story. He is superintending over it. And here's the idea. The story is going to have a conclusion. This moment is going to come to an end. The resurrection marks the final days of the world. Though it has gone on for two millennium. The scriptures tell us this is the day of salvation and its days are numbered. When I encounter a myth, I have no numbered days. I can make myself, uh, create myself. I I can sustain myself in my myths. I never die. Never die in my myths. What a gracious God to come and tell us and give us the answer, the story that will deliver our heart from other stories, from other myths. And then we are really just a collection of people who gather on Sunday mornings and we gather throughout the week and we're just a collection of people who understand this myth-making capacity of us. We, we, we understand it. We, we're learning more and more about how, uh, how it can grip us. And then lastly, I want you to reflect. Finally, as we come to a conclusion, I want to talk about love. And let me read verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We think about my past, my present, my future. What love moves you? Are you nostalgic? I tend to be nostalgic. Um, the past always has kind of a glow to it. Do you know someone is thinking today that these are the going to be the, these are the good old days? Do you know that? How do you think about the past? Is it, is it moving your heart to love that time? Is it a golden age for you? Do you sort of bemoan the, the place you're at right now, the present moment? What love moves you? Today, we are saying aloud and reflecting and remembering the love that is to grip our hearts. It is a it is a heart it is a our hearts were meant to be responders to the word of God and to what God does for us and this changes our view of God you see he really did think about your past and he thought about how you couldn't change your past 
And God thought about your present and how, no matter how much energy you have, you can't change your present. And your future, you were destined to stand before him as your judge. And you see, what he did was he, he sent his son on a mission of mercy. And the response of our hearts as we believe him is to, is to love. Those who have been forgiven much love much. Paul is now leaning into the future and he includes the rest of us as all those who have loved his appearing. For some, the appearing of Jesus is something they dread. But for Paul, he knows that the appearing of Jesus will be his own personal vindication. And with this, I'll close. What Paul is saying in this verse Chapter 4, verse 8. He's saying that he will be rewarded. And what he means is not that he's going to wear some special crown or get some, something to you know, wear that's, that points out how special he was. What it means is this. It means that the true judge, God, will rightly declare him vindicated. The human courts that Paul endured gave him nothing but injustice. And this relates to our suffering in this world. You see, we have got to rely upon the resurrected Jesus to usher in an age of justice. And his resurrection is an indicator of what that will look like because the judgment of Rome was reversed. You see, the judgment of man against Jesus was reversed. And you've been made to love God because God stands for righteousness. And whenever there's sorrow that enters your heart from a movie where someone is mistreated, something is wrong, someone doesn't get the justice they deserve. There's something in your humanity that cries out, it can't be. You can't end the movie this way. Nor can you end the world this way. And this resurrection morning is a day where God is declaring to us I will remember all of your sorrows. I will take your sins upon my, place them upon my sons, but I will remember all of your agony and your hardship and your difficulties, and I will be your just judge on the day of judgment. This is the love that is to animate us. This is the love that is greater than, than some some past I would wish would come back, or some present that I wish would just be better, or some future that I wish I could just control. It means that the big macro world that Jesus is now managing, he is going to usher in the day of judgment. And this is for our good. And for some of us, this means more than we may let on. Because we have been hurt. We have experienced sorrow in this world. And it doesn't seem like God notices. 
It doesn't seem like God is present. But the word of God tells us he does notice. He is present. And he will bring a day of reckoning. A day of final healing. When justice will reign. Join. Join those who are anticipating that day. Who loved his appearing. This is what we do in worship. We're trying to remember how to love the goodness of that. We forget the goodness of that. And so I invite you. I extend to you um, the ministry of this church throughout the year. Next Sunday and beyond, we'll continue in preaching God's word. And may you find your past, your present, and your future making sense in light of Jesus Christ. May you find your life in him. Let's pray. Father, these time zones feel so real to us. I pray, Lord, that you would take away the weight of them, the burden of them. Cause us, Lord, to shake off our guilty fears that we're not cared for, that we're not loved, that, that no one is managing, overseeing this world. Father, you have this extraordinary ability that is beyond our understanding. You can bring everything together for good. And we thank you for the huge signal, the message that reverberates over the centuries that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The world could not hold back your plan. And nor can it hold back your plan for us. Help us believe and live in this confidence, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.